You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. What a way to start our Sunday by raising our voices to the, um, raise the mighty roar as we just sang to our God. Well, I'm Rachel, and I'm going to read um, part of our verses for today um, with you. The past couple of weeks, we have started going through the book of Luke, and today I'll be reading from Luke chapter 2, so if you want to open your Bibles or however you read the word, I'll be reading verses 22 through 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, and worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Thank you, Rachel. So we're getting some momentum now in the book of Luke here. Again, the the theme verse that we want to remember for Luke is, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Understand that as we look at at Luke and the gospel, we need to understand more about Jesus. There is no greater question that can be answered than the question of who Jesus is and what relevance he has to us. The Bible is God's story, and Jesus is the central figure within it. You and I cannot get this wrong. We've got to get this right. It's essential to our faith. It's essential to salvation. 
Acts chapter 4 says it, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Luke puts together for us an orderly account indicating his deliberate and careful, unhurried sharing of gathered facts. He's establishing credibility to lead us into this historical account of the life and ministry of Christ. And God led him to do this. We can trust it. We've seen this build momentum now as as silence from heaven was broken as Zechariah is in the temple lighting incense and the angel greets him there and this 400 years of heavenly silence is broken. And then we have John's miraculous birth and, and so amazing that he would be the one who'd be that heavenly start for the one who would go before the Lord. And Gabriel announces to Mary the child that she will carry, even though she's a virgin, will be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Again, so important, tying what we see in the New Testament to the foundation of the Old Testament. We looked at the birth of Christ, even happening in Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah 5, and the response of the shepherd, and how, how God included the lowly shepherds in this, and this wonder and amazement is a theme that recurs throughout Luke with the proclamation of his Messiah. I've entitled today's message, Seek and You Shall Find, and uh, Seek and You Shall Find a good title for it. I've changed that title three or four times, and I would probably change it again, so we'll just not get too excited about that. But anyway, it's, it's interesting to note in this, in this passage that we will go through, even the a few verses beyond what Rachel read to you, all the references related to seeking. We see see and seen, reveal, light, Sign, search, look. In today's passage, we will see that God's people find the redemption that they seek. We'll see further confirmation that Jesus is the source of that redemption. We will see that some are going to oppose him. And we'll also see that God's favor was upon his son even in his youth. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just pause now to just ask you to take over. And Father, accept the worship that we have lifted before you because you are worthy and we just stand in awe of you. Father, we recognize that because we have the gospel, because we have accessibility to the story and the account of your son and the redeeming plan, we realize that that alone makes us incredibly blessed. So Father, we just pause and say thank you for it. Father, we just pray that your word would have its impact in the hearts and lives here and in those around us. Father, we know that we live in a world that's searching and needing and and hurting. Lord, we think of uh, what happened in Libya, and we just pray for those people and those families and the efforts there. Lord, there's so much hurt. We just lift it up before you, and we ask you to do what only you can do and empower your people to make a difference. Father, we pray for the service that will happen later today in here and the one at East. We just lift it all up before you and ask you to move in a mighty way. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Joseph and Mary do what they know they're supposed to do according to the law. 
Remember from the end of last week's passage, they had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. And then we see here at the beginning of our text today that it reminds us of Leviticus chapter 12 as well as Exodus 13 when they present their firstborn to God 33 days after the circumcision and they bring an offering for Mary's purification after having given birth. Luke records that they bring two doves and two young pigeons. This tells us that they were poor and could not afford a year-old lamb. It's really a public acknowledgement of that poverty. Remember from Mary's song from last week, she's saying, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Again, that theme of reversal that we'll kind of just keep seeing uh, cropping up in Luke as we go through. It gets interesting here in verse 25 when we have an introduction to this man named Simeon. We find more than one Simeon in the Bible, but sadly there's just not enough information about this one. I would have loved to have known more. But Luke wants us to know that Simeon is righteous and devout. Again, when we see that someone is righteous here, it doesn't mean that they are without sin. Really, just speaking of them being godly. Devout by its meaning is deep religious feeling or commitment a, commit, a commitment to a cause or a belief. He, he's committed to this because he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the word waiting here, that it's, it's translated, it really could come out as, as watching or looking as well. He's attentive to this idea that the consolation of Israel is coming, that there will be a Messiah, there will be a Redeemer. The silence from heaven is going to end. The oppression from Rome will be lifted. This is what he's, he's looking for. Now, you and I might be tempted to make the assumption that, that Simeon had some formal role in the temple. And this is not likely a safe assumption. Luke usually includes titles in his writing. And so we don't know that he had that role. We, we must know what we're told, and that is that the Spirit of God came upon him and the Spirit told him that he would live to see the Messiah. Again, as I read this, I'm filled with so many questions. That's why I'm saying, Luke, couldn't you have given us more? We need more detail here. Did he enjoy knowing that he was not going to die until he had seen the Redeemer? What did he do besides that which was right and seeking and watching for the redemption of Israel? Did he have family? When was he given this promise? An argument could be made that the silence of heaven was first broken to him, because this could have happened prior to Zechariah meeting the angel in the temple. We just don't know. But if he, if he had been told, wouldn't he have told others? Or maybe he wasn't allowed to. Or, or, or maybe he did and nobody listened, and perhaps maybe Anna, who we'll see in this text, is the only one that believed him. We just don't know. Maybe it would have been too hard on him if he had been told too far in advance. It would have tortured him. I don't know. Notice verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, let's just hold it there for a minute. And my mind has him inspecting every child that's brought in, right? Right? 
Imagine you bring in your child for dedication, this, uh, this crazy man runs up to you and just kind of inspects and kind of goes, oh, and you're thinking, what's wrong with my child, right? You know, it could have been offensive. Uh, but really, verse 27 could also indicate that, that uh, Simeon may not have been there that often. Maybe we're thinking of how Anna was always there, and, and Simeon actually just came in the Spirit when Jesus was being brought there. It's, again, we don't know. But we have this man named Simeon, and, and he encounters Christ, and we have this almost Lion King kind of moment, this Simba held up moment where he's just in awe. And why does the Lord grant this for him? Why does Simeon get this experience? Again, we can only speculate. Is it because he's a righteous and devout man? Probably played into it. Was it because he just had pure desire for God's deliverance? Does Simeon want this more than anybody else? I mean, is this his sort of dying wish? The term bucket list has become pretty popular over the, over the years, hasn't it? Do you have a list of things that you must do or places you must go or things you must buy before you die? What's on your bucket list? To travel? To make a specific purchase? To maybe give something away? To build something, to achieve something, to accomplish something, to skydive? In my last church, we had a 90-year-old retired pastor whose kids bought him a skydiving experience for his 90th birthday. A man 90 years old jumped out of a plane. Personally, when my kids buy me skydiving experiences, I'll wonder how the relationship is. But <laughs> do you have some family goal, something you want to do as a family or see before you die? Or, or what's your spiritual before I die goal? Something you want to see so bad. I'd encourage you, if you're a believer and you have a bucket list, I hope there's some spiritual things on there. Maybe we should examine the motivation behind the things that matter so much to us. We know that Simeon was certainly not the only one who, who wanted this, but maybe he just wanted it more than anybody else, and God saw that. God looked at the heart of this man. Again, verse 27 says he came in the Spirit into the temple, and no doubt Simeon went to the temple often, but this day the Spirit directed him and revealed to him that it was Jesus. Imagine now being Mary and Joseph and, and you're coming in to dedicate your child and this very passionate man comes up and essentially rips this child from your arms and starts to celebrate him. And saying things like, I can die satisfied now. Look at verse 29. Says he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mo mother marveled at what was being said about him. Simeon, this godly man, gets to see with his own eyes the one who will bring redemption, the one who will bring salvation. And, and what a statement he makes. Remember, the Holy Spirit was upon this man, right? And notice also it said in verse 32, a light 
for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Luke is telling us even this early before Jesus' official ministry begins that the Gentiles are included. And we'll keep seeing this. In verse 29, he says, Now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He's saying, I can die satisfied. You fulfilled your word. Your, your prophecies are, are true. This was a revelation of the Holy Spirit to him. And that revelation to him about not seeing the redemption became true. Notice also that we're told that Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said about Jesus. You've got to stop and ask the question, can these two still be surprised at anything? We've got a virgin birth going on here, angels visiting and shepherds coming and telling, you know, and they're still surprised, but apparently they are. They've seen and experienced so much, but it keeps coming. Look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearers may be revealed. Understand, Simeon may have had no formal role in the temple, but he does speak as a prophet here. And in the second part of his speech, he's saying, listen, there will be the be for the fall and rising of many. And we got to say, what does that mean? Notice he didn't say the fall or rise of many. However, he did continue to say that a sign, he'll be for a sign to be opposed. And we will see, and we do see as we go on in the, in the Gospels, that some oppose Christ. And Isaiah spoke of that in chapter 8 when he said, the Lord will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. But, but why does Luke write what he does and say, the fall and rise of many? I would think that the answer actually might be revealed in baptism, the ordinance of baptism that we see here on a regular basis. Remember that, that going down into the water and rising back out. It's, it's symbolizing the death to self and rising to new life in Christ. And it's designed to be a public proclamation of what has taken place in our heart when we surrender ourselves to Christ. You see, it's in the recognition of how lost and how desperate and how hopeless we are apart from Christ that we truly find new life in Him. So in other words, you can't just rise to new life. You must first fall. You must first die to self. We cannot rise without having fallen. Remember John preaching the baptism of repentance, right? Repentance so central to the gospel message. It seems interesting to me here that Simeon seems to address Mary and not Joseph. The simple fact is we don't hear much more about Joseph. Maybe because Simeon knew Joseph would not be around. I don't know why. There's some theory that Joseph died somewhere along the way. But what mother wants to hear that her child will be opposed that her own soul will be pierced as, as by a sword. No doubt her soul was pierced 
with pain as she watched her Jesus endure what he did in the years to come. Mocked, rejected, beaten, spat upon, scourged, and nailed to the cross. Look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I, I, I'm assuming that you have made the same assumption that I did, that, that, that Simeon is up in years. We just assume that. Now I can depart in peace. But it really doesn't say that. But we know that. Uh, we, it's very clear in the text that Anna is, is old. She'd been widowed. And it, again, this uh, ESV makes it sound like she was 84 years at that, old at that time. There is some confusion about that. There's some interpretive challenges that exist. The Net Bible actually uh, translates it as, she was very old, having been married to her husband for seven years until his death. And then she had lived as a widow since then for 84 years, which puts her somewhere in the neighborhood of 103 to 106, probably. King James translates it similar. Here's the good news. It doesn't matter. She was old. But she's giving her time and attention to the Lord. And no doubt after hearing Simeon and seeing him react, maybe that's what sparks her, and she gives thanks to God. And I would have loved to have heard what she was saying, the actual words, and Luke doesn't share her words. But she proclaims God and shares her passion. Think with me for a moment. How amazing is it that these two people get this profound joy to have their eager expectation met. Something they want more than anything. These servants of God get, get to see, they get to meet Jesus, to meet the Redeemer. They encounter the one who will bring salvation. We know that there were many before them who wanted to see it, right? But they got to. How amazing. Look at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Parents, let me talk to you for a minute. Do you think there might have been any stress in raising the Christ child? Do you think you may have been a little bit more cautious or, or a little bit worried, more worried about how you reacted or whatever? I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of different opinions about how to raise kids, right? Right? There's all kinds of styles. We see it even in a church family. We see uh, the, the, the permissive parenting, uh, the trusting and laid back. 
Other people wonder, do they ever tell that child no? The kid falls asleep wherever he falls asleep and, and whatever. Kids will figure it out through experience. It's just chill, right? Allow kids to have a phone whenever. Play contact sports. Allow them to ride motorcycles. Then you have the other side, of that, the, the, the controlling, the protective, right? All decisions are made for the child. Child is sheltered very carefully. No electronics till they're 30. They wear protective gear to play Frisbee, right? It's, and I'm not casting judgment. I, I've been on the, all over the pendulum as a parent. But... I think being a parent has a way of revealing our own flaws, of showing our own issues. It can be so stressful, right? Right down to issues of nutrition, education, of purity, of, of the social deviance stuff, safety, careers, future mates, faith. And in all these things, as we watch our kids, we, we, we then go back and ask ourselves questions. What did I do? Or what did we do wrong? Or, or why didn't we? Or why didn't I say this? Or, or maybe I should have. Or did we spoil the child? All the what ifs. What if she gets hurt? Or what if he does something illegal? Or what if they get an accident? Or what if they walk away from the Lord? And Luke gives us this, just this tiny bit of information about Jesus before the age of 30. We do see that Mary and Joseph carefully followed the rules, had him circumcised, purification rites, dedication to the Lord, went to the feast of the Passover. But notice now that Luke indicates an interesting portion of, his, of the early life of Jesus. And again, I, I would suggest this might be further evidence that Luke actually sat directly with Mary and got her account. But look with me at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In the Jewish culture, once a man was 13 or older, he was to attend the Feast of the Passover, and many godly women did too. 
Luke tells us that they went every year. They were faithful. They had gone and experienced Passover, and now they're heading back and come to this problem. Anybody here a, a fan of having to turn around and go back for something after you've started a trip? You people that laugh, you, you understand me at least. Uh, how's your mood when you've got to turn around and go back for something? I was raised and my dad was just militant about, we had to make good time and whatever, you know, everything was a race, right? We had to, and to have to turn back for something is horrible and I have to force myself to not get upset and just be willing to just turn the car around or say, we'll buy whatever you left, right? But imagine it. They begin to look for this 12-year-old son and anxiety builds as they're not succeeding. They're asking everyone. They're starting to run around calling his name louder and louder with more intensity. Imagine the stress. You just lost the Messiah. How's that for a parental blunder? I mean, whatever you've done wrong, parents, you didn't lose the Messiah, did you? And did they blame each other? You know, husband and wife, mother and father? Oh, you were supposed to, you know, all that sort of thing, right? They make the decision to go back. A day's walk against the traffic, which would have been significant because everyone would have been heading home after the Passover. Maybe asking questions like, what if we can't find him? A whole day's journey back. They still can't find him. Finally, they see Jesus in the temple. And he's making an impression upon those teachers there with his questions and his answers, it says. And maybe we stop here and we just ask the question, how could Jesus make an impression on those in the temple as a 12-year-old? Do we want to run and say, this is Jesus pulling on his omniscience here, right? His, his all-knowing status of being God and man. And I don't know that that's a safe assumption, I think this was rather a result of a sinless life. No doubt he was well studied and in communion with the Father. It was his passion. But here as a 12-year-old, his teaching is already unique. And these people around him, are under, they're hungry for an understanding of the Word. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus himself is the Word embodied and here's these teachers in the temple that are, are realizing there's something extraordinary about this 12-year-old. If you're Mary and Joseph, are you mad at him? We read, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. No doubt they were relieved to find him. And some want to stop here and say, wait a minute, it was this rebellion on Jesus' part, the sin? Well, scripture would argue against that. First Peter says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Again in Hebrews, for it was... 
indeed fitting that he that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained separate from sinners or separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens first john 3 you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin in second corinthians 5 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His response to their question was great and is very telling. He said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? John 8 says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Here we see that first sign that Jesus' number one mission is to do the will of the Father. I love what Kent Hughes writes here. As a 12-year-old, one year before becoming a son of the commandment, Jesus had come to the understanding or to understand that he had a unique relationship with God the Father, one far deeper and more pro- profound than any that had ever had known before. Namely, he now knew that he was the son of God, the Messiah, the God became a man. 18 years later, when Jesus began his public ministry, his awareness of God as his father would become trademark of his ministry. To catch the idea of how radical this self-understanding was, we need to understand that in the huge library of the Old Testament's 39 books, God is only referred to as Father 14 times and then rather impersonally. In those 14 references, Father is always used in reference to the nation, not to individuals. God was referred to as Abraham's father, but Abraham did not speak of God as my father. But when Jesus came on the scene, he addressed God as his Father and never used any other terms. In all his prayers, he addressed God as Father. The Gospels record his using Father more than 60 times in reference to God. This was a watershed experience for the 12-year-old. The awareness of his divine paternity was explicit in the very first of his recorded words in all Scripture. This awareness was announced in the Jewish temple in the very heart of Israel's faith. And these words are part of the infancy narrative that began in the temple in chapter 1 and now ends in the temple. What is the point? Jesus is God's son. God is his father. One year before officially entering manhood, Jesus knew who he was, and that realization would open like a flower and become evident to the whole world 18 years later. But notice that we do read then that he was submissive and went back with his parents to Nazareth. And what does Mary do? No surprise, she treasured up these things in her heart. And we're told Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. As I close now, I want to ask the question, what do you and I do with this? 
First of all, I ask you the question, did, do you know who you are in Christ? Have you come to that place of realizing that you, that you need him, that you need a relationship with him, and that's the only way of, of salvation because that leads to you be call, being called the child of God, being able to say, God, my Father. And he was appointed for the rise and fall of many, and, and there's an important part of this understanding of who we are is to understand how weak we are apart from Christ and why we need him. Again, Hughes writes, we need to ask God to show us our insufficiency. What grace would come to us if we dared to pray for a greater sense of our spiritual need? I love Martin Lloyd-Jones' writings. He writes this, As long as you are in the position of trying to justify yourself, you have not repented. As long as you cling to any attempt at, at, at self-justification or self-righteousness, I say you have not repented. Surely the man who is repentant like David says, there is not a single excuse. I see it clearly. I have no justification. The things I see in my life, I hate them. I had no business doing them. I did them willfully. I knew it was wrong. I admit it. I frankly confess it. Again, he, now quoting from Psalm 51, he says, that thou mightiest be justified when thou speakest. And be clear when thou judges. What did David say before? That I know my sin. And against you and you only have I sinned. There's a, there's a part of that, the fall before the rise is that understanding of how desperate we are and how much we have sinned and we need God and his justification. When we've received Christ by faith, we become a child of God, and then we can rest assured that we who are in Christ experience salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your wonderful word. And Lord, as we just get this small picture of what Christ's childhood was like, Lord, it makes us long for more to know more of the details, but Father, we thank you for Luke and his account and Lord, you wanted us to know that your spirit was upon him even then. And that you honor those who seek after you and seek your ways. And Father, we would ask that you would just grant us clarity of who we are in you if we've invited Jesus to be our Savior. That by faith we can be called the sons and daughters of God. And we give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.